parables, and all of them are in response to something. What was Jesus responding to? To put it simply, community breakdown. Um, And we printed it, the first couple of verses in the beginning of the passage, just so we get an idea of the context. Uh, When you look at verse 1, it says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were the social outcasts of the day. They were also the moral outcasts of the day. And here's Jesus. He's rolling out the red carpet for them. So the religious leaders are furious about this. It says they were grumbling. Um, But understand something. The religious leaders are not just upset because of some theological disagreements they're having. Uh, They're upset. They're angry both at Jesus and at the people that he's welcoming because they see these people as being, uh, they're destroying the social fabric. In other words, they're looking at these people, they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, these people are everything that's wrong with the world. I can't be in community with them. In fact, the world would be a better place if these people weren't in it. And when we understand that, we realize we just leapfrogged over 2,000 years and landed right here in America 2018. Because, you know, I've been alive for 10 presidents now. And uh, I would imagine that even those of you who have a few more presidents under your belt would probably agree with me that we've never seen a time in our society when we've been more uh, culturally, socially, and politically alienated from each other as we are right now. We've probably never seen seen a time in our country when we've been more inclined to divide the world up into us and them, good and bad, and to say ourselves, these people are everything that's wrong with the world. I can't be in community with them. The world would be a better place if they weren't in it. Jesus is telling us this parable in response to that. This parable shows us what God is doing about that, what Jesus is doing about that which means that we've never seen a time in our country when we've needed this parable more than we do right now. Friends, Jesus is inviting us on a journey, and it's a journey not only into the roots and causes of social breakdown and community breakdown. This is a journey into the heart of God. But I need to warn you. um, We may say, oh, I want to go on this journey. I want to know more about God's heart. I want to know more about God's love. We say that, but a lot of times we don't. Not really. Why, why do I say that? Well, let's start by looking at the very beginning of this parable. We're going to look at this story for five weeks, so we've got time. And the very first thing we need to do is understand what it means to be lost. Jesus tells three parables. We're studying the last one. Three parables. One is about a lost sheep. One is about a lost coin. The one we're looking at is about a lost son. And twice in this parable, Jesus says that this son was lost. In fact, lost is a word that the Bible uses over and over again, both in the Old and the New Testament. It uses the word lost to describe the human condition. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be lost? And how does that lostness affect our society, our community as people. This parable helps us. And this morning, I want us to see three things about lostness. This parable shows us the effects of lostness. It shows us the nature of lostness. And lastly, we're going to see just a little bit about the healing of lostness, okay? The effects, the nature, and a little bit about the beginning of healing for lostness. So first, the effects of lostness. When the younger son goes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the property, uh, basically he's asking for his inheritance. And we might look at that and say, hey, you know, no big deal. 
But for a son in the Middle East to do that while the father was still alive would have been shocking. Why? Kenneth Bailey uh, was a, a New Testament scholar, and he was also an expert in Middle Eastern culture. He lived most of his life, lived and taught most of his life in places like Egypt, in Lebanon, in Palestine, in Israel. Uh, he once spent 15 years, he said, going around the Middle East and, and asking people from all over the Middle East, hey, um, what, what would it mean for a son to ask for his inheritance while the father is still alive? And he said that almost inevitably the conversation always went like this. He would ask, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? And the answer would always come back, never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. What would happen if they did? Well, his father would beat him, of course. Why? Because the request means that he wants his father to die. So understand, this is not just a son who wants to go off and have a good time. This is a child who's so deeply alienated from his parent that he's basically saying to the father, I wish you were dead. Give me what's coming to me now. This would have been not just shocking, but this would have been deeply damaging to the whole community. Why? Well, first of all, it would have been damaging to the family because in that culture, for the father to give the son his inheritance, he would literally have had to sell off his whole estate. Um, so it would have damaged the family economically. Also, this was a shame and honor culture. So for a son to make a request like this in that community would have brought deep social humiliation onto the family. It would have damaged the family socially. But even more than that, this would have damaged the whole community because that culture uh, was organized around the idea that, that, that the community can only flourish when everybody in the community plays the role that's assigned to them. So you're a father or a mother, you're a son or a daughter, you're a shepherd or a craftsman or a farmer. Everybody plays their role in society, and only when everybody's playing their role will the society function well. And we're going to talk more about that idea in a little bit. But that's the world they lived in. And when we understand that, we realize that um, this son is not just endangering himself as an individual. He's endangering the whole community. But even more than that, we have to see that the younger son is not the only one who's endangering the community. Because at the end of the story, when, when the younger son comes home and the father wants to welcome him back by throwing a party, you notice how the older son, the older brother, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He's furious. He's so eaten up with bitterness and anger and resentment that he refuses to go into the party and take his part in the community. This is not just a story about our own individual lostness. Our lostness has effects in the world. It, it leads to community breakdown. And it's not just the younger brother. Both brothers have a role to play in the breakdown of their community and their society. These are the effects of lostness. And that leads to our second point. We need to see also the nature of lostness. Because over and over in the Gospels, Jesus keeps talking about the people that he came to save and describing them as being lost. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be lost? This parable helps us. So first, look at the younger brother. Now, what does he want? At a very surface level, he wants money. Um, he also wants the freedom to be able to go and do what he wants and live the way he wants to live and be the person he wants to live, be without anyone telling him what to do or who to be, nobody telling him how to live his life. So he's the classic rebel, right? He's the rule breaker. He just wants to go do his own thing. But here's the question. Why is this younger son rebelling? 
Why is he breaking the rules? What does he really want? At the end of the day, this younger brother, he wants happiness and fulfillment. He wants meaning and significance. He wants joy and pleasure in his life. And the way he's seeking happiness and fulfillment is by leaving his father and going off into a far country. Now, Tim Keller wrote a whole book on this parable, and he puts it perfectly. He says, basically, the younger son doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff. In other words, he doesn't want a relationship with the father. He wants the blessings and the gifts and the things of the father. He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff. Now, in this parable, the father represents God. And Jesus is telling us that being lost means rejecting God in order to to seek happiness and fulfillment apart from God. And that actually is a really good definition of sin. You know, sin is a, a complex thing. And in fact, in our culture, sin is also a deeply offensive and highly controversial thing. And that's for good reason, because religious people for centuries have been using the phrase dirty sinners to marginalize people and to oppress people and to demonize people. But Jesus here is showing us that sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is seeking good things apart from God. That is a very different definition of sin than we're accustomed to understanding. You know, it's not doing bad things. It's seeking good things apart from God. There is nothing wrong with happiness and fulfillment. There's nothing wrong with meaning or significance or joy or pleasure or any of those things. Those are really good things. In fact, God created us to enjoy those things, and he wants to give them to us. But sin is when we want the gifts more than we want the giver. Or we could put it like this. Sin is relational breakdown with God long before it ever turns into behavioral disobedience of God. It's relational breakdown with God long before it ever becomes behavioral disobedience of God. And when we see that, all of a sudden we realize that the younger brother is not the only one who's lost in this story. Because look at the older brother. Why is he so angry? He tells us in in verse 29, he says to the father, look. And by the way, it's never a good sign when you begin a conversation with one of your parents by saying, look. He's saying, look, bub, all these years I have served you. And really the word he uses there is the word for slave. He's saying, I've been slaving for you all these years. I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What's going on with this older brother? You see, on the one hand, he never left the father's house. He never left the village. He stayed put. He stayed in the village. He stayed in the home. He's never disobeyed even one of his father's commands. Behaviorally, he's perfect, right? He's doing really good things, but he's not doing them for the father. He's doing them for himself because what does he want? He wants the same things as the younger brother, happiness, fulfillment, meaning, significance, joy, and pleasure. But instead of seeking them by leaving home and disobeying the father like his younger brother, he's seeking them by staying home and obeying the father, which means that he's just like the younger brother. He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff. Physically, physically he's still in the house, but relationally, this older brother is in a far country also. 
Both of these brothers are far away from the father. Both of these brothers are lost. They're just lost in different ways. The younger brother is lost in his rebellion and in his rule-breaking. The older brother is lost in his goodness and his rule-keeping. But both of these ways are just as alienated from God because both of these are ways of seeking your own happiness and fulfillment apart from God. Now, let's bring this into our world. These two brothers, these two ways correspond to the two primary ways we go about looking for happiness and fulfillment in our world. And one way is what we would call the traditional way. This is the older brother. Traditional cultures, traditional societies say that the way you find happiness and fulfillment in this world is by accepting the role that's been given to you by your family or by society. We could call this the way of self-discipline because basically in this way you are sacrificing your own individual interests for the sake of the larger community. It's the traditional way. But the modern way is the exact opposite of that. The modern way is the younger brother. We could call that the way of self-discovery. That's the exact opposite of the way of self-discipline. And so instead of accepting the role that's been foisted upon you by society, oh, no, no, you've got to go find your true self. You have to be true to your authentic self. That's the way of self-discovery. Instead of, of accepting the role that's given to you by society, you reject the demands of society in order to go find your true and authentic self, your own individual desires and interests. Now, it doesn't take much reflection to realize that those two ways, those two approaches are deeply at odds with each other in our culture. Because you have, you know, traditional older brother self-discipline types who will say, well, it's those irreligious, liberal people who have no respect for morality. They're what's wrong with the world. And then you have the modern younger brother self-discovery folks were saying, oh, no, no, it's those bigoted conservative religious people. They're what's wrong with the world. Jesus is saying, in this parable, Jesus is showing us that both of those approaches is wrong. Why? Because both of them are in a far country. Both of them are alienated from God. Because both of these are ways of seeking to keep control over our own lives, seeking our own happiness, our own fulfillment in our own way, ways of being our own Lord and Savior. Each of these ways loves something else more than they love God. And in this parable, Jesus is showing us that this is the cause of all of our problems in the world. It's the cause of all of our problems in life, the cause of all of our problems in society. It's not that we love the wrong things. It's that our loves are out of order. And disordered loves lead to distorted lives. So think about it. Your life is filled with all kinds of things that you love, right? But you don't love all these different things in your life equally. You, uh, a lot of your loves are what we would call superficial loves. Superficial loves would be things like maybe you love ice cream or chocolate or wine or Netflix or the Cardinals or ice skating or gardening. You have room in your life for probably hundreds of superficial loves. But then there are what we might call significant loves. You only have room in your life for a handful of significant loves. Those would be things like your spouse or your children or your parents or your family or your community or your job or your home or your vocation. There's only room in your life for a handful of significant loves. So here's the question. What happens if you love, say, the cardinals more than you love your spouse? There are going to be distortions in your life, aren't there? 
That love is now out of order. You've taken a superficial love and you've made it higher than a significant love. And if you do that, it's going to lead to distortions in your life, distortions in your relationship, distortions in all of your community. Disordered loves lead to distorted lives, okay? Now, here's the thing. As we just mentioned, you can have a lot of superficial loves and you can have a handful of significant loves. But then there's also what we might call your ultimate love. Friends, there's only room in your heart for one ultimate love. And if you put anything in that place other than God, then if something threatens it, if something takes it away from you, then you are going to have huge distortions in your life. So for example, money is a good thing. There is nothing inherently wrong with money. And if something happens to your money, it's natural to be sad or befuddled or worried or upset about that. That's perfectly natural. But if you make money your ultimate love, or if you make career or status or your children or romance, if you make something like that your ultimate love and then something threatens it or something takes it away from you, you're not just sad or upset, you melt down. You're paralyzed with fear. You fly into a rage or you sink into depression. Your whole world falls apart. Disordered loves lead to distorted lives, distorted relationships, distorted communities, distorded societies. Or you could think of it like a solar system. You know, what's a solar system? It's a community of planets. And all the planets, the, the, the harmony of the system depends on all of the planets revolving around one sun. The sun is the ultimate love. It's the center. And as long as all the planets are revolving around the sun, then, then the whole community is in harmony. But what would happen if one of those planets decided to center on itself? Not that something like that could happen. But what, what if it were to happen? All of a sudden, there would be chaos. That, that planet would spin out of control. It would be crashing into the other planets. There would be total breakdown in the system, okay? Friends, sin is wanting to be your own center. Instead of centering on God, you center on yourself. Being lost is like a planet that's spun out of control. And that's exactly what's going on with these two sons. They're far away from the Father. They have spun away from the center, these are, this is the nature of our lostness. And before we move on, let me apply this to our lives just a little bit. Um, and first, individually, what does this mean for us as individuals? I would encourage you this week um, to ask yourself a couple of questions. And the first question would be this, what is my ultimate love? What is my ultimate love? Do you know what it is? Because we all have one. And, and I said, be careful at the beginning of the sermon, and here's why. We can say we want to know God's heart. We can say we want to know God's love. We can say that, yeah, God is my ultimate love, but a lot of times he's not. Are you really sure what your ultimate love really is? Because a lot of times it's not what we think it is, not when the rubber hits the road. And it's hard to look at that. It's scary to look at that because we don't want to acknowledge that because there are things in our life we want to protect. We want to keep control of our own happiness and fulfillment. And so a lot of times, we may say our ultimate love is one thing, but in reality, it's something else. But do you want to find healing for the distortions in your life? If so, you need to discover what your ultimate love really is, or at least what's competing for your ultimate love. So ask yourself this week, or if you really want to be brave about this, ask two or three people who know you really well. 
They will help you see things that you can't see, don't want to see by yourself. You know, maybe your ultimate love is approval. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's power. Um, But as you start to get an answer to that, that, the first question is, what is my ultimate love? Second question is, am I more of an older brother or a younger brother? In other words, do I tend to seek my own happiness and fulfillment more through um, rule-keeping and obedience or through rule-breaking and rebellion? Which one am I? Okay? Um, You will never find healing for your lostness unless you understand the nature of your lostness. And asking questions like this actually helps you to do the work of discovering what your ultimate love really is. And if you don't know, you will never find healing for your life, okay? So that's the first thing. But secondly, how does this apply to us as a community? I think one of the big ways, there's lots of ways, and we'll look at different ways in the weeks to come, but one of the big ways um, based on what we've been seeing so far is this. Remember what we've seen in this parable. The community is broken because the brother's relationship with the father is broken. So disordered loves lead to distorted lives. Or as we say around here fairly frequently, you cannot address the social distortions of the city without addressing the spiritual distortions of our lives. So here's the challenge. In our secular society, we say, well, look, if you want to be a religious person, if you want to believe in Jesus, hey, that's fine, as long as you keep it to yourself. But when it comes to addressing the social distortions of our communities, of our society, spiritual solutions are not on the table except as an uh, an elective. But they are not considered to be a part of the solution for the biggest problems in our world. And one of the big reasons for that is that our Western secular society is probably the first culture in the history of the world that doesn't believe it has any beliefs. In other words, if it's not science-based, fact-based, empirically verifiable, then it doesn't qualify as truth or knowledge, and therefore it's not considered to be a part of the solution. So look at the ways we address our social problems in this world, things like science, technology, education, politics. Now, those are good things. Those things should be a part of our solution to the world's problems. But if Jesus is right, and he is, that all of our social breakdown in this world is due primarily to our relational breakdown with God, then as wonderful and as necessary as all of those things are, ultimately what we're doing is treating symptoms and not the root cause. Now, obviously, you know, there are a lot of competing religious and spiritual truth claims out there, and it's very difficult in our pluralistic society to privilege one above the other. But even though that's the case, I would say that one of our big jobs as a church not just this church, but, but the global church, in this cultural moment would be to find multiple, creative, compelling, and gracious ways of, of helping our secular society to see that they really do have beliefs and faith assumptions and that they all depend on spiritual, supernatural, metaphysical reality. And when you say that to people, they'll tend to get very upset with you. So for example, we have a lot of programs in our culture that are designed for the betterment of society, a lot of programs that are designed to help people, social programs, science, politics, education, technology. All of these things are designed with an idea of what's best for people. But here's the question. You can't know what's good for people unless you know what people are made for. 
So for instance, you know what's good for a wine glass or a clock or a lawnmower because you know what those things are made for. You therefore know how to treat them well. You know what's good for them. But if human beings are simply the result of random irrational causes, then by definition, human beings aren't made for anything. How in the world would you know what's good for them unless you have some kind of belief or faith assumption that tells you? One of the biggest jobs for the church, I think, today in this cultural moment is to find ways to help secular society acknowledge the presence of its beliefs and then the necessity of spiritual reality to give um, credence to those beliefs. And that requires people that are willing to be a part of all of those realms that we just mentioned. And a lot of you in this room fit into those categories. We need Christians helping in this area in all of these realms, things like science and medicine and technology and education and politics and law and economics and art. Even just being a neighbor who's invested in the lives of the people who live right next door to you. This is a big need in our society right now. Just helping people to see, hey, you really do have some beliefs and those beliefs depend on spiritual reality. Disordered loves lead to distorted lives. If your relationship with God is broken, it's going to lead to breakdown in the rest of the community. And that means that we need to find a solution for that. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the effects of lostness. We've seen the nature of lostness. This week, we're going to be looking more and more at this in the weeks to come. But this week, let's see just a little bit about the beginnings of the healing for lostness. Because even in this very first scene with the son and the father in this request, we see the beginnings of how the father brings healing and reconciliation to this younger son. Because remember what we saw. The younger son comes to the father and basically he says, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me what's coming to me now. And then off he goes. Now, when you have deep relational hurt in your life, your inclination, my inclination, is you want to hurt the person back. So in that culture, in that society, the father would have been expected to to beat his son and drive him out of the house. That would have been the expectation. When somebody hurts you, hurt them back. But not this father. What does this father do? Listen to how Jesus puts it in verse 12. At the very beginning, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, that's the father, divided his property between them. Now, here's what's so interesting and really so poignant about this. When the son says, give me my share of the property, he uses the normal word for property or possessions or money. But when Jesus says the father divided his property, he uses a different word. It's, he doesn't use the normal word for property or possessions. He uses the word bios, which is where we get our word biology, which is the study of life. Bios means life. Literally, Jesus is saying the father divided his life for his sons. And when you understand that, friends, that's the gospel. Because that's literally what this father would have had to do. He would have had to sell off his land. He would have had to sell off his livestock. He would have had to sell off his possessions in order to give this son his request. Because they didn't have banks back then. The father couldn't just write a check or give the son a stock option. The only way was that he could fulfill this request was that literally he would have had to tear his life apart. Friends, this is the gospel, and it shows us two amazing things. And the first is this. This father 
gives the son everything he needs and sets him on his journey. Can you imagine how heart-wrenching that would have been? He probably knows how much ruin and heartbreak the son is headed for, that he's going to go off and he's going to ruin his life. It would have been heartbreaking for the father. And yet, instead of driving the son away, instead of getting angry, instead of punishing the son, he gives him everything he asks for and he sends him on his way in order to preserve the possibility of reconciliation. Because if he had punished him, if he had gotten angry, if he had driven him away, he would have alienated the son even farther. He lets the son go in order to preserve the possibility of reconciliation. Now understand something. The son, in order to come back, is going to have to do some repenting. And we're going to spend all of next week looking at that. But it would never have been possible if the father hadn't have been willing to let the son go in the first place in order to preserve the possibility of reconciliation. But even more than that, when you see a God like this, when you see a father like this, A father who's willing to literally tear his own life apart in order to see lost daughters and sons like you and me healed. That shows you a love. That shows you a passion that will transform your heart. Because instead of punishing us, this God, this father sent Jesus Christ, the true son, to this world in order to take the punishment we deserve for our abandonment and rejection of the Father in order that we might enjoy the relationship with the Father that only Jesus deserves. Because Jesus is the true Son. And Jesus, on the cross, Jesus went into the ultimate far country. He didn't just leave his Father's house. He left a throne in heaven. Jesus didn't just end up in a pigsty. He ended up on a cross, and his body, his life, literally, physically, was torn apart so that you could be healed and so that you could be brought home. When you see a God like this, when you see a father like this, literally tearing his life apart in order that you could be healed, that changes you, that transforms you. That, that melts your heart. When you see a vision of a love like that, that plunges your heart into a love so that you are now able to make this father your ultimate love. Ask yourself this week, what is my ultimate love? What is it really? Do I know what it is? Am I willing to be honest with myself about what it is? Jesus is the true son who went into a far country in order to bring you home. There's the love you need. There's the transformation your life needs. There's the healing that your relationships need. There's your true inheritance. Go get it. It's there for you. Make it yours by seeing Jesus on the cross. Fix your heart on him. Fix your eyes on him. Make him your ultimate love, and you will be healed. Let's pray.